Hello, everybody. Oh, sorry, Mandy, you were going to talk? Oh, no, I just, I'll, I'll cut this out, but Kevin's saying he wants to do it. So I don't know if you want to wait for him or just say. Just tell him we have okay. another, you have a recording at five that you have to do and we have to get this one in so it releases tomorrow. Okay, cool. Right. Go ahead. All right. Welcome, everybody, to True Crime Tuesday, where Amanda and I are here to tell you a brand new tale of the old, cold, and often told true crime tales. I am one of your hosts, Shanna, and Amanda is back again. We are two for two. I'm here. And you're here, and you're not hacky and gaggy, which is spectacular. Yeah, I still am a little, but not as bad, thank God. Yes. So, in a brief announcement, just wanted to thank everyone that listens and shares. Um, Amanda and I are proud to announce that we have reached over 500 listens on this podcast since we started, which is phenomenal to think that so many people, um, and I know it's not 500 people listening, but I know we have a lot of return listeners, and I want to say thank you so much for your support, and we are really, really loving everything, you know, that we're getting suggested and everything that we're bringing to you. So thank you so much. So with that being said, Amanda, are you ready to go? Yes. (laughs) Yay us. Yay us. All right, I'm ready. (laughs) So not only are we taking a trip, but we are also going back in time. We are going back to 1990, one of our favorite decades. All right. So we are actually going back in time to a little place in Wisconsin. And when I say a little place in Wisconsin, I actually mean a very small town. We are going to Lac de Flambeau, Wisconsin. And I'm probably butchering that, and I apologize. (laughs) But if that, is the, if that is the correct pronunciation, we're going to go with it. But as of 2020, this town had just under 1,900 people. As in 1,900. Okay. <laughs> That's small. It is very small. And it is actually um, home to the Lake Superior Chippewa tribe. And they are a federally recognized uh, American tribe known as the Ojibwe Native American tribe. Um, And they have actually populated this land since 1745. Okay. So they've been there a very long time. And the town was actually named after the practice of fishing at at night by torchlight. Okay. So... The Lac du Flambeau Reservation um, was... Sorry, everybody. Yeah, I am probably butchering that, and I am so sorry, but I do not speak French. (laughs) So with that being said, the reservation was officially established um, by a treaty, or the Treaty of 1954, There are 260 lakes, 65 miles of streams, lakes, rivers, and 2,400 acres of wetlands. So, I mean, when I think of um, Wisconsin, I don't think of wetlands. I, you know, I kind of. I don't really either. 
So it is actually, this town is actually on the National Register of Historical Places um, because it was the last battle between the Sioux and the Ojibwe, and that was fought in 1745. And in 1966, that land was actually identified by an archaeological survey as a place with artifacts and remains dating back to 200 BC. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, that's a pretty, that would be a really neat place. Like if you're kind of a, a history buff. So we are going back in time, like I said, to 1990. And we are going to be talking about the case of 29-year-old Susan Poupart. Okay. And Susan was a 29-year-old mother of two. She had a 9-year-old son named Jared and a 3-year-old daughter named Alexandra, but they called her Alex. So Susan, but affectionately known to a lot of her friends and family as Susie, was a proud member of the local Black Duflambeau Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indian Tribe. Um, she liked to go out and have fun. Um, she was actually born and raised in Lac Duflambeau. Um, so she loved her kids. Um, her son Jared would actually recall how every night she would lay out his school clothes for him. That way they were ready to go, um, you know, the next day. And she would always act silly and perk her kids up. Um, she was known as quite an artist. She actually studied at a New Mexico college um, for art. Um, she served on the Lakeland Board of Education, was a secretary for the Flambeau Tribal Council, served as the director of the Great Lakes Intertribal Council Youth Services Program, so obviously she was, you know, really, really busy and active in her community. So we are going to go, this brings us to May 20th, 1990. And Susan was living with her kids at her sister's house. And she decided she was going to go out for the evening. One of her friend's little brothers was joining the military. So they were throwing him like a going away party. Nice. So she went to the party, and when she didn't return home to her sister's house a within a couple of days, um, her sister reported her missing. Um, they were immediately concerned um, because they knew that she would never, like, abandon her children. Right. So the, the delay in the actual report of her being missing a lot of people, when they hear that, they're like, why did it take them so long to, you know, report her missing or whatever? And back then, it was, you know, kind of widespread that people were allowed to go missing if they're adults, you know. And also, they lived on federal land. They lived on, you know, reservation land. So it was hard to figure out just who would need to take that report. Would it be, you know, the reservation police or would it be the lack of flambeau? Right. So that is where some of the delay comes from. Um, and also, it's kind of a small town. You know, everybody knows everybody. You go somewhere, people know where you're at. So I'm sure her family just kind of thought that she'd show up or, you know, she'd turn up. Right. Um, so... 
the law, um, the lack of flambeau is a public law and that, or the public law enforcement and then the, the reservation police, you know, have jurisdiction over the reservation land. Right. So this is where Sheriff Fath comes into play and he's the lead investigator on this case. And I know in a lot of cases that we cover, a lot of our frustration goes towards or is aimed at law enforcement because they just don't seem like they can be bothered. Yeah. That is not the case with this one. Okay. <laughs> so yes, Sheriff, finally. Yeah. Except it's still cold. So hmm. yeah. Sheriff Fath has been the lead investigator on this case since the day it opened. Wow. And he actually has pictures of himself with her kids. And every time he moves offices, that picture goes with him and he rehangs it because he wants to remind himself that this is why he does what he does. Right. So, um, especially in like the small towns, whoops, you don't hear, there's not a lot of like turnover. So um, that's really awesome. So he said that the investigation, when it opened, it didn't originally come into the sheriff's office. And it actually took a couple of days for it to find its way there. Um, So they were kind of, I don't want to say passing the buck, but he couldn't get involved until the federal try or the reservation police said it was okay. So, so she's at the party and it's just kind of, nobody knows what happened to her. So then they start, you know, questioning people at the party. Um, So then it gets to the sheriff's department that she actually left the party with two guys. Oh. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, So there's actually two conflicting reports on this. The first report says that she got into the car willingly And then there are some reports that say it looked like she was being forced in the car. And this is like... somebody saw that and didn't say or do anything? Exactly. And this this party went on till like 4.30 in the morning. So I don't know how many people were left at the party or, you know, if anybody was left at the party. I mean, come on, what an asshole. Yeah. I'm here telling the cops it looks like she might have been forced into the car, and you're just now telling somebody this? Yeah. Okay, sorry. So, (laughs) according to law enforcement, two guys named Joe Cobb and Robert Elm say that Susie was with them in the car because she asked them for a ride home from the party, which makes sense, you know, if they've been drinking. It didn't appear that she had a car, so it would make sense, especially with a small town, you know, 1,900 people. Everybody knows everybody, so it wouldn't be unheard of for her to be like, hey, can you give me a ride home? Right. But they say they had an argument, and instead of taking her home, they decided to drop her off at a local elementary school instead. Likely story. Because. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Okay. So, and I'll post this picture, or I'll post the map in our, our group when this drops. But the elementary school that they dropped her off at, supposedly, is in the complete opposite direction of her home. Okay. So, the, and when you look at it, there's absolutely no reason or no route that they could take that would put them in the direction of that school. 
Like they, yeah. there's just no reason for them to have gone that direction. Okay. So weird. Yeah, those two are people of interest, and law enforcement has another man named Fritz Schumann. Now, Fritz is short for Francis, and everybody called him Fritz. And they, he's a person of interest because people in the community said that they heard him bragging that she, he was involved in her death. Mm. So they, mm. it's back in the 1990s, no body, no crime kind of situation. So right. law enforcement is doing everything that they possibly can to try and and find her. Um, they've got, you know, volunteers out looking for her. They've got, you know, police. They've got everyone out looking for her. And they're just not finding her. So then that takes us to six months later on Thanksgiving Day in 1990. Um, in the And I'm probably butchering this again. And I'm so sorry. The Chakwamegon National Forest. A couple okay. of hunters were out, um, you know, kind of foraging and hunting. And they came across a really peculiar scene. There was a, a huge, like, log kind of laying at a weird angle. And they found Susie's tribal identification and her jacket. Hmm. And we're like, that's weird. So when they pulled on the jacket, they found a jawbone. <gasps> yeah. Okay. So immediately they're like, this isn't right. There's, there's something wrong with this picture. So immediately they called the police. And police came and recovered what they could. Um, but, you know, with being out in the woods for six months, animals, yeah. you know. So along with her body, there was duct tape and plastic. So in the eyes of law enforcement, um, it was clear to them that they were likely dealing with a sexual assault and an attempt to hide her body. Yeah. Um, they also say that her corpse was found naked. Uh. Um, Wait, I'm sorry. I, where was the rest of her body? Um, well, she had... I thought they only found that maybe I heard that wrong. They when they pulled the jacket out, they found a jawbone. So when police oh, right. came and moved the log and everything, they were able uh, to find more remains. They the, okay. the two oh. hunters just didn't dig anymore because they knew that they Got were it. looking at a potential crime scene. Okay. So they also believe that she was naked because they did not recover any clothing. Um, so they believe that is what their main clue to her being sexually assaulted was. Right. Um, now, unfortunately, no one has ever been charged in Susan's death, and many people in the community have periodically come forward with information, but then when it comes down to, to time for them to make an actual statement and put, like, it down in writing, they recant. Interesting. And they say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't have any information. So police strongly believe that there are people out there that know what happened or likely a lot of people know what happened to Susie. Yeah. And one thing that they did do back in nine, 1990 is Sheriff Fath actually sealed a lot of the evidence because he's like, I know we can't do anything with it now, but we may be able to in the future. So he sealed all of that so that way DNA could be extracted later. Well, that's good. Yeah. So, um, a lot of people say that 
maybe no one came forward to as to what they saw at the party that night because maybe there was illegal activity going on. Like with a lot of parties, mm-hmm. there might have been drugs, you know, might have been underage people. Um, it could have been a lot of things. So, yeah. yeah. Um, the case kind of fell off of everyone's radar except for Sheriff Fath. And then in 2007, he actually opened up what they call a John Doe hearing. Do you know what a John Doe hearing is? I do not. Okay. And this is actually something I wasn't aware of either, but this is um, something specific to the state of Wisconsin. And a John Doe hearing is essentially, you know, like when you have a grand jury hearing, it is to present evidence to see if you can get an an indictment. Mm Mm-hmm. So a John Doe hearing is along those lines, but instead of presenting the evidence, it's used to gather evidence to secure an indictment. So normally, yeah. So normally the grand jury comes in, they hear the, you know, evidence and they decide whether they want to indict someone. So a John Doe hearing is um, something that is initially initiated um, when there's probable cause to believe a person has violated the law. Um, so it actually helps law enforcement develop the evidence necessary to establish probable cause. Um, so the proceedings are overseen actually by a circuit court judge, and it's the responsibility of that judge to use his or her training um, in constitutional and criminal law um, to determine the need to subpoena witnesses. So in short, Judges are able to ensure fairness and decide whether an issue to issue a complaint, um, like a criminal charge against someone. So they actually have these get initiated one of two ways. The first one, which is the most common, is when a district attorney files a complaint with a judge. Um, and it's a sworn statement and alleges criminal conduct. So then the judge will then submit subpoena and examine witnesses that are provided to them by the district attorney. So that one's pretty similar to the grand jury where, you know, they come in and they present the evidence. And then the other one is a little more interesting. It's a citizen's complaint. So what the citizen would do is they would come in and say, the district attorney isn't doing enough. I want to have a John Doe hearing where they then can have police and um, the district attorney, or excuse me, the prosecutor um, will meet and they will go through like the different parts of evidence and determine if a crime is committed and if there, you know, is enough evidence to move forward, even if the prosecutor doesn't believe that they should. So they can either be private or they can be public hearings, but a lot of times they are kept private because they don't want um, the case to get out there in the open. Right. Like they don't want to, you know, show their hand. So they keep it secret so that way it doesn't give potential um, defendants a chance to, you know, mess with witnesses. They, they are less likely to flee or anything like that. So, um and they also feel like witnesses will be more forthcoming if they believe that, that it's not going to be out in the open. And they can also offer immunity to witnesses, um, you know, for their testimony. And with it being secret, 
a lot of times it doesn't get out that they're the ones that snitched. So yeah, that kind of tends to be why, you know, they would use a John Doe hearing. So when this John Doe hearing took place, um, they questioned all three men. Well, they attempted to question all three men. So um, Fritz Schumann actually showed up and they questioned him, but he pled or he exercised his uh, Fifth Amendment. Of course he did. Yeah. So that is irritating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was bragging to other inmates and everyone that he um, he knew what had happened and he had taken part of it. So that was irritating. And then there was also um, excuse me, I have just sneeze. I'm so sorry. Oh, you're okay. <laughs> okay. So then um, they tried to, you know, get in contact with the other two witnesses and Richard Elm actually came forward and he didn't offer much as far as information. And then the third gentleman actually didn't even bother to show up for the hearing. So they are, wow. you know, for this time, they're still pursuing him. Um. So at this time, so they don't subpoena people for that. Yeah, they subpoenaed him, but the one guy just didn't show up. Oh. And you know, obviously, they issue bench warrants, but you know, they can't really. They have to wait until they pick him up, and they believe he fled like the area. Yeah. So, in 2014, DNA technology had made enough advancements that law enforcement were able to send evidence from the crime scene in hopes that something would come up. Um, and then they also, the family also placed billboards on highway 47, um, which is the highway, which is right by where her body was found. Um, mm -hmm. and they had her picture on it and information on how to contact police with, with tips anonymously. So, um, Unfortunately, with the DNA, they weren't able to pull anything that would help them with the crime. Um, the sheriff's office still receives tips, but nothing has panned out. Um, Jared and Alex pass that billboard every single day. It's been up for over 10 years. Um, and um, Alex, her daughter, has had to explain to her children that their grandmother was murdered um, and she has two sons and, you know, that's a hard conversation to have. Yeah. And every day, you know, she just, she was only three when her mom passed away. So the majority of the information she has about her mom is actually from her brother and her older brother, Jared. And unfortunately, even though they were taken in by family when their mom died, um, they weren't able to stay together. One went to a grandmother and one went to an aunt. Mm. Yeah. Um, so Sheriff Fath has considered this case primarily cold case, but um, he has been diligent in, he keeps reaching out to additional agencies to help him. Um, he's called the State Department of Justice and even several Division of Criminal Investigation agents. Um, he's talked them into helping him. Um, 
They have given him access to crime labs and the FBI lab for evidence. Um, the problem is they just don't have what they need to actually secure a conviction. So right. they they say without naming any names, they are 90% sure they know what happened. They just lacked the evidence to be able to prove it. Mm. And I think that's where the need for someone to come forward as a witness is what they need. Yeah. Because I, I'm pretty sure with her body being in the wetlands for six months, you know, any usable DNA is probably destroyed. Oh, yeah. So her family has been fighting for 32 years to have justice for her. And they've actually put a $20,000 reward together um, of their own money. And Sheriff Fath is continuously submitting the DNA for testing again. Um, hoping that um, there's enough of a sample there, you know, with new advancements and that whoever did this to her has committed another crime to land them in the database. Yeah. So he, I mean, it's not like he just sent it in and said, okay, nothing there. He continually sends it in and continually, you know, fights to have this resolved. Um, so... I don't know. This one's really heartbreaking because it, it sounds like they have everything that they need. And unless someone comes forward, there's just really nothing that can be done as far as, you know, securing any kind of conviction. Yeah. That's... And I think that's, I think that's the hardest ones is like to know what happened and just not knowing. To not be able to prove it. Yeah. And it makes me wonder if maybe they could do something with genetic genealogy. Yeah. Or maybe, know. you know, but maybe the DNA is just so disintegrated that, you know, they need something more direct to match it with. Right. I don't know. Uh, that sucks. And I did read also, you know, with her being an indige indigenous woman, women that are in or indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be murdered. Yep. That's horrific very sad. I don't get it. Ugh. Well, that one sucks. I know. So do you want to take a guess? And I forgot to give you my guess on the angry Amanda scale. Oh, yeah. Where is it at for you? I mean, I'm definitely going to say a four. You yeah. know, it just sucks that people probably know what happened and just aren't saying anything. And, you know, even though the police kind of did what they needed to do, there's just not enough evidence. Like, it just, ugh, sucks. Yeah. And this one, I really wanted to make sure I put an emphasis on the fact that, you know, this one is not remaining unsolved because of a lack of effort. Right. Um, this is one of those cases where, you know, you really have one of those standout, excellent, you know, members of law enforcement that is truly, truly committed to, you know, finding answers. And I mean, hats off to Sheriff Fath. Yeah, for real. Man. Well, all right then. Yeah, that's a bummer. Um, I'll make sure when I um, share the episode on Twitter, I'll share in case anybody has any information, you know, Absolutely. Do, do contact. It's been so long. It's like, 
but you know. And I wonder too, with some of these really, really old ones, if we're going to start getting like deathbed confessionals and stuff, you know, cause they're getting to the age where I mean, 1990, she was 29. So she right. would be, you know, 69. <coughs> so, you know, you're getting to the age where some of these people aren't spring chickens anymore. Yeah. So maybe they've, you know, lived with this stuff long enough, you know, if they're sick or, and that also scares me too. Like what if the person that did this is already deceased? Yeah. You know, then there's no justice for the family. And I know some people say that, you know, justice is served on the other side. Well, no, I want justice here. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> there's some people out there that say everything is forgiven and some things are unforgivable. I mean, all you can hope if they're already dead is that they come back in their next life as a dung beetle. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and like one that I get to practice new bug spraying techniques on. Exactly. I want it to be like diluted enough where it's like they don't die instantly. It's like kind of slow torture. Yeah. And then, like, I, and then they get up and kind of like try to move and then I get to come at them again. And then we do this for like 10 hours. Yikes. Yeah. You're vicious. I am. <laughs> All right. Do you want to touch base with our listeners and let them know what to expect on the sip list yeah so this week on the sip list we will have our top five vampire characters um casey was on and we were joined by the yeah uh-huh podcast and then next week um we have a brand new guest who will hopefully be on the um i did not make these rankings drafts soon her name's taylor she um invented a, a game called quote me cards and it's a movie quote game and she was a lot of fun. So our episode with her will be out next week. We did um, top five movies about friendship. So stay tuned for those. And yeah, everything else that'll be coming up soon. All right. And of course, you see us here every Tuesday or hear us every Tuesday. And we are also co-hosts on a couple of other shows that we want to just touch base on. Um, Amanda and I are co-hosts on an evening at the movies. And right now we are right in the middle. We're wrapping up quickly the Stephen King birthday bonanza. Um, and then we also have our chaos brackets going. So um, that one is, is turning out to be a lot of fun. And then yeah. um, we're going to be sliding into Halloween horror fest. And then um, with literature reapers we just released the hellbound heart review and then we have a review coming up for our second read of the month because the hellbound heart was a little on the short side so we yeah. are reading to kill a mockingbird so stay tuned for the release of the review on that one the others have read it before this is my first read so definitely excited about that but other than that that winds up our telling of the old cold and often untold true crime tales thank you for listening and we will see you next time bye bye Bye. oh hey shan did you know being an adult is hard yes i do well i don't think we should make it harder one of the most important decisions you have to make as an adult is buying or selling your home as a person who's done both i truly hate it from picking the perfect home until you close, it can be a wild and crazy ride. But you know what helps? Having a great realtor. They can definitely make or break the experience. I couldn't agree more, Amanda.
If you live in central Iowa, it doesn't get any better than Tiffany Markham with the American Real Estate Company. Whether you're moving to the city or you want to check out a place out in the country, she will be completely committed to getting you into your perfect home from start to finish. When buying a home brings you lemons, Tiffany makes lemonade. With vodka. With vodka, yes. <laughs> from late night negotiations to inspection hiccups, <clears throat> spiders, termites, whatever, you, she has you covered. So if you're looking to buy or sell a home in central Iowa, contact the American Real Estate Company on Facebook or call Tiffany directly at 515-776-0164 and tell her the girls from Crime Rewind sent you. And happy house hunting. Good luck.